Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 023, Homer's Iliad, book 6. Last time we talked about Diomedes' Aristea and his hijinks with the help of Athena on the Achaean battlefield, fighting against not only Aphrodite successfully, but Ares as well. We saw the, the invincibility of Apollo in the wake of Diomedes attempting to stab at him, failing, not even coming close to him. We'll see something similar, too, with Patroclus later on. Whenever anybody goes after Apollo, they fail even to touch him. He's beyond, he's beyond their grasp, you might say, as the light bringer. And so Diomedes was richly rewarded with valor on the battlefield and is becoming more and more an exceptional and integral part of the Achaean war machine. So now in book six, we're going to shift some. We're still going to continue seeing Diomedes and see a bizarre interaction between him and a Trojan named Glauca, Sarpedon II. Very bizarre, bizarre uh, episode where they'll exchange armor because of uh, guest friendship uh, that their, their grandfathers share, Bellerophon, as well as Aeneas, grandfather of uh, Diomedes, son of, and his son was Titius, of course, who is the father of Diomedes. You learn these names over time. And so that's going to happen. Also, Hector is going to receive a prophecy from his brother Helenos that he needs to return into Troy and have his mother Hecabe sacrificed to Athena if there is going to be any chance of Trojan success. And frankly speaking, that, that's a fairly wise prophecy, I would say, because with the Achaeans taking the field of battle, given the fact that they're stronger and better ordered and are superior numbers to the Trojans, the only chance the Trojans have, frankly, is if Athena helps them. And in fact, they, they couldn't predict that Zeus would help them, as he will, because how could they possibly predict that Achilles' principle of conflict in the world would turn against his own people and then cause and wreak havoc on them too? Well, perhaps a very thoughtful person could have seen that coming, given that that's what Achilles embodies. But, well, the hope seems to have been that he would behave himself long enough for all these Achaeans to win the war, and he almost did. The battle rages on, and so we return to the battlefield. And the first thing we see is that Menelaus does have battle prowess. He fights and catches Adrestos, a Trojan, who then begs for his life and begs to be spared and um, sold back to his father, which was common practice. If somebody were a noble and they were caught, it was much more worthwhile to take their armor and sell them back to their parents or to somebody else for more income than you would have gotten simply from their armor after stripping their dead body, which is a dangerous thing to do, as we've already seen one of Odysseus's companions die attempting to strip armor. So one pays for one's avarice uh, on the battlefield. If, if you're wondering how does somebody drag a, battle, a body all the way back to the ships to, in the middle of a battle, well, that's actually a fairly good question because there are rocks being thrown everywhere, chariots going by, uh, spears being thrown, and people looking to kill you and take you and your armor away. Um, though this does seem to be more of an Achaean practice in general, or at least we hear about it, I believe, more with the Achaeans. Um, though there will still be major Trojan-Achaean battles over bodies, particularly over Sarpedons. The, the bodies will be piled all the way on top of... Uh, they will be so piled so high that one cannot even see Patroclus's body by the end of the fight, indicating that the Trojans certainly would have liked the armor on him. And, well, the armor he's wearing at that time will be Achilles's, and so that makes sense. <clears throat> In any case, 
Menelaus, he catches Adrestos, and Adrestos pleads for his life, and though Menelaus, gentle-hearted and possibly looking to make some coin, thinks about sparing Adrestos, Agamemnon comes over and shows that he's turned a little bit bitter and cruel uh, during the events of the last few books, because what he says is, let us spare... Well, in fact, let me read this to you. So, what he says is, lines 55 to 60. Dear brother, O Menelaus, are you, are you concerned so tenderly with these people? Did, did you and your house get the best of treatment from the Trojans? No. Let not one of them go free of sudden death and our hands. Not the young man-child that the mother carries still in her body, nor even he, but let all of Ilion's people perish utterly blotted out and unmourned for. So, that's crazy talk. First and foremost, Agamemnon said, uh, really does appeal to Menelaus' anger at Paris and says, did you get such good treatment from a Trojan in your house? We're calling to Menelaus Paris' abduction of his wife and then says, let's not spare any of them, not even their children. And Why this turn in attitude by Agamemnon? Well, seeing as Achilleus is now out of the battlefield and their victory is in question, you might imagine that he's now feeling extraordinary stress and anxiety that he hadn't experienced before. He feels very much under the gun. And we recall that Diomedes mentioned this explicitly when Agamemnon attempted to dress him down, he said. Recall, Sthenelus, argue not against the great man, for it is his name which will be remembered hereafter as glorious or as crestfallen. And so Agamemnon's well aware of what's at stake right now, and that he is in a far, a far weaker position than he was before. And so Menelaus pushes the man to the side, and Agamemnon stabs him in the side and fells him. Nestor, then showing his wisdom and his ability to counsel on the field of battle as well as in the assembly, then suggests that all the men stop going, taking the armor off of corpses. Why? So that they can all fight together in a unified front, which is intelligent. And so, because of this, the Achaeans form a far more intimidating predator-like formation. They, they, they join up and form themselves into what it is that they're meant to be. And so, what does this do? Well, interestingly, immediately after the Achaeans form up like this and direct their focus towards the Trojans, the scene shifts to a Trojan one where Helenos, the prophet and weakling brother of Hector, who we'll talk about later, is potentially um, one of the reasons that Troy falls, potentially like his brother Paris. He is a coward, and he, he, is, he is caught by Odysseus at one point, and some information is extracted from him, and it's hard to say exactly, because it's not said just how hard Odysseus had to work to get that information. And there are, there are whispers that Helenus was a traitor, um, and he certainly did give up some very valuable information to the Achaeans after he was captured that leads to the fall of Troy. Two particular pieces of information, the location or the necessity of Philoctetes and also the necessity to collect Neoptolemus. Each, each task was given to Odysseus to accomplish, of course. <clears throat> These are the stories of round the Iliad, sort of like the stories that exist around the Old and New Testament. <clears throat> So Helenos, this prophet, comes to see Hector, and he says, Hard though it may be, we need you, brother, to go back 
to the city because I've seen a prophecy indicating that our mother Hecuba needs to um, sacrifice, I believe, 12 robes or her finest robe, her finest robe for sure, to Athena, which means she has to sacrifice something of high value that she's worked on for a long time, which means if the Trojans are going to win this fight, they need to uh, they needed to have trained for a long time to be strong enough in order to defeat this new threat, which they now must pray for help defeating. And so Hector has to return to Troy. And this will be the last time he's ever in Troy. And this will be our, our biggest glimpse into Troy and Trojan life. And um, less as an anthropology, we'll see this more as a study of Hector's character and the potential um, pitfalls that could could afflict him, none of which actually will. Um, he's going to see the three women who love him in Troy, and each one of those women will offer some temptation to him. So these are his final three temptations, you might say. And Well, he nobly and like a true hero will deny each and every one of them, though they get more and more difficult to, to say no to, to um, as we go. And so Hector here will show us just the sort of character he has. So the first thing he does is he does his job immediately. He goes right to find his mother and asks her to go to the temple and sacrifice precisely what she must to Aphrodite. <clears throat> his mother then in an act of kindness will offer him wine in order that he may rest. And so, what is this first temptation? Well, Hector has been working very hard. And so, wine seems like a very reasonable reward. She suggests that it will refresh him. That is a very reasonable thing for her to say to him. However, he understands actually that that's simply what she's saying in order to get him to stay for some time and to enjoy her company. The problem with him staying and enjoying her company as much as he would love to do it is that he is the commander of the forces outside the walls that are fighting for their lives against the Kians right now. He simply does not have time to do that as much as he would love to and as much as he surely understands that this is the last time that he will see his mother. <clears throat> and so he turns her down. And Actually, I've jumped ahead of myself just a little bit. Before we get deeper into Troy, let's return to the battlefield because our hero Diomedes, who's been coming up in the world, well, he encounters now a Trojan named Glaucus. And Glaucus gives us one of the most famous, one of the most famous responses um, that most people who read the Iliad recall. One of the most famous quotes from the Iliad. It actually pops up twice, not only here, but also from Apollo's lips in response to a challenge from Poseidon and uh, to fight during the Theomachy. But Diomedes calls out, who are you? Ostensibly because he wants to know the name of the person he's going to kill. And Glaucus gives a long, florid reply. But in it he says, why ask me my name, son of Tidius Diomedes? Because just as the generations of leaves are, so are those of man. Suggesting that it doesn't matter what his name is, he's nameless. He, like the leaves, comes and goes. And so, what's it matter? 
It's as if he's already accepted death. And in fact, he continues to talk on and on. And the lesson I often teach, teach the students here is that what that clearly means is he's stalling for time because he's hoping he says something eventually which keeps Diomedes from killing him. And he sure does. He recounts his family history and tells the story of Bellerophon, Bellerophontes, in the translation I teach, who's the grandfather of Glaucus and Sarpedon. And so we see the Glaucus is related to Sarpedon. Well, very similar to the story of Theseus' son, Hippolytus, the wife of the king tried to seduce him. Her name was Antia. And she lied, saying that the reverse happened. And so Bellerophon was sent with murderous symbols, meaning words, to Lycia. Very similar also to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And there he, like Heracles, was given three impossible tasks, which he, which he did accomplish. To defeat the Chimera, which is a lion-goat snake. To defeat the Solomoi and the Amazons, warrior women from Thrace. Well, this Bellerophon was so successful that he had three children. Laodomea, who, along with Zeus, had Sarpedon. Hippolochus, who with his wife had Glaucus. And Sarpedon, with his, um, <clears throat> and Sarpedon, therefore, is the cousin of Glaucus. Oh yeah, and I don't know why I thought of this just now, but a claim I made in the last lecture was that we never got the name of Odysseus's sister. In fact, that's wrong. I was reading with the students today in Book Fifteen of the Odyssey, and Eumaeus, the the swineherd there, makes mention of the fact that he was raised alongside. And during the story Eumaeus is telling of his upbringing, he mentions that um, Anticlea, Anticlea, the mother of Odysseus, raised him up alongside Catimene, um, the sister of Odysseus. So the sister of Odysseus is named Catimene, if you ever have a trivia night or something like that. Well, um, one problem is that there was this, this other son, um, who was killed by Ares Asandros, which means some sort of conflict must, must have killed him. And Artemis killed Laodomea, and Artemis and Apollo often bring death with silver arrows um, at night, um, especially Artemis is the goddess of the moon, so it's a painless death. So a death by Artemis is a, is a good death to have. But so Diomedes then sort of freaks out gets happy, joyful. He says his father was Aeneas, father of Tydeus, and he once hosted Bellerophon. And well, because of the Xenia hospitality rules, these guys are friends. And so I think I've mentioned this before, but Xenia means guest or host in the Greek language. Also, it means stranger. And so it's the relationship between the guest and the host, uh, the stranger, because they're both strangers, even if only one is in a strange land because the moment a stranger is in your land, your land becomes anomalous and therefore strange. And so the Xenia is the relationship protected by Zeus, even though Hermes is also a god of travelers, which is why Zeus and Hermes are known to be good uh, traveling partners. And you might also say that they're good traveling partners because Zeus is the principle of order and, and uh, Hermes is a god of mischief, um, equitable mischief, but mischief. And so he makes fun things happen. He's, he's very similar to um, Athena, and I've seen the argument made before um, that, in fact, Hermes 
as a trickster figure is what morphs into Athena as a wise figure. And well, at least the Jungians, including Jordan B. Peterson, would say these days that you have to be a fool before you can be wise. And so that, um, from a cultural level as well as an intellectual level, strikes me as entirely correct. And so Diomedes suggests that they exchange guest gifts now, a show of what they think of each other's value. And well, this is a very funny part. And in fact, Glaucus is given some flack in the catalog of ships too for making a foolish bargain here. And what it is is that he has golden armor trim with a, worth a hundred cattle, a full hecatomb. It's a treasure. Um, and he gives that away for Diomedes's podunk bronze armor, which is worth a measly nine cattle. And so nine cattle probably by this time in Achaean civilization would have sufficed as a true hecatomb because, um, well, that which is first given is given to the gods, as, as the Odyssey says. And, well, the hecatomb started as a hundred cattle, but that soon became more of a heroic ideal than an actual reasonable sacrifice to make because who could feed that many people ever, uh, really, and sacrifice that many cattle ever without destroying his herds? Um, so it's, an, it's a heroic sacrifice. It means an incredible effort, a heroic effort, an effort beyond the pale, beyond that which could be even given in normal reality and therefore an ideal. And so Diomedes' armor is nice, but it's worth 91 cattle fewer than Glaucus. And so the, the comment often made is that Glaucus gets the bad end of the stick here, but I say, no, 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 that's not right. And in fact, I, the students have often said this as well, and they say this, Glaucus may have lost his golden armor, lost some status here, but what did he get to walk away with? And the answer is his life. He was lucky that Diomedes found common ground with him. And Diomedes is also showing his increasing in value and rank by literally increasing the value of that which he is wearing. So you really do dress for the job you want to have. <laughs> so go Diomedes. All right, so back into Troy. And so after seeing his mother and, and turning down her offer for wine and company, um, and uh, Hector... Just to go back to the sacrifice he had his mother make, um, he had her make twelve a sacrifice of 12 heifers, female cows, and robes to Athena. But, of course, Athena is on the Achaean side, and a detail mentioned is that she turned her head. But at least at least she saw the sacrifice. And, um, but she and, the, she and Hera have no pity whatsoever for the Trojans. And, in fact, Hera and uh, Athena, even though there is a prophecy made by Zeus that Aeneas must not die during the Trojan War. When he is in grievous danger of being killed by Achilles later on, they will talk to Poseidon and say, we can't help you, buddy, because even if Zeus gets really mad, we can't help a Trojan. And Poseidon will essentially say that's the craziest thing he's ever heard, them having that much hate, and then we'll go fix the situation himself. He, he's often a situation fixer, though not at all times. But in the in the Odyssey, we'll see him, well, very interesting, actually. In the Odyssey and story, we'll see him fixing a situation, but against old Odysseus, we'll see him instigating a situation. But um, sort of with reason and sort of not. His son is blinded by Odysseus, which you would think would make him mad. But on the other hand, his son is callous and hateful towards the gods, and so you might not think that would make him mad. And Maybe that's the difference between being a father and a god. In any case... Hector now goes to seek out Paris 
at his home with Helen because what is he doing at his home right now when there is a battle being fought outside for him and the woman he brought here. And so what he does is that he walks into his brother's house with his spear and his sandals still on, indicating he's there for business. You didn't generally walk in with a spear. It could be something like seven to nine feet long. Um, I don't know about the upper dimension of that. It's a long pointed object. It's a weapon. He's not there to hang out. What does he find <clears throat> Helen doing? Well, she's, she's busying herself with her attendant ladies um, spinning yarn, <clears throat> a common female activity at that time. It's something we'll see Penelope do. We'll see Helen do it again later. And we'll hear about even the concubines occasionally doing that sort of thing, adding to their personal value. And so what is Paris doing, though? He's polishing his armor. Billet busying himself with it? What does that even mean? He hasn't been wearing armor. He's dawdling. He's a coward. He's wasting time. He refuses to leave his home. His big brother has to come get him. Hector harshly rebukes Paris and tells him to come fight in a characteristic fashion. After he does so, though, Helen, observing the alpha male, the dominant Hector, the man honestly with whom she ought to be, as the most beautiful woman, she should be with the strongest, noblest man. It makes more sense in terms of a narrative, even. And yet, and so she invites Hector to sit with her. And this is a call to Hector in multiple ways. For one, what, an, what a pleasure and an honor to sit with Helen and to talk to her. Not only for her sheer beauty and elegance, but for the, the tremendous wit and charisma which lie behind her eyes, lovely as they are. And so also, he's the only person whom she'll admit later who's kind to him. Or rather, he is the only person who's kind to her, who doesn't belittle her and make unkind remarks. And so it's a call to his compassion as well, because he's one of, he's, he's essentially her only genuine friend. So there's a romantic element there, which can never be divorced from Helen, but also a genuine friendship uh, call. And so he refuses this as well. And as Hector leaves his house, he goes, he goes then by a place that he couldn't fail to go by, which is his home, because who, who must he look for? And the last time he ever goes to Troy, well, uh, that's his wife, Andromache, and his son, Astyanax. So, why is Hector's house empty? Because Andromache and Astyanax, his son, have gone to the wall to watch the battle. They're brave, and she wants her son to be brave, and to see, to see her husband bravely acting. And so she's a political woman as well, as the, as the princess and queen-to-be she must be out there with her people, watching and guiding them, and also showing strength with the future king. Although that future is very dim and hard to grasp. And so Hector finds Andromache, his wife, and she's with Astyanax. And a small note, and a sweet note, is that 
it's mentioned that he calls he calls his son Scamandrios, and so the Scamander River, also called the Xanthos River by the gods, is the river that Troy subsists off of. It's their major water source, and it's a major running river. And in fact, there will be another river named by Helenus and his his Boothrotum land of sadness after the fall of Troy, where he will name a river which is actually a dried up spring. Scamandros as well, indicating that his hope for a future and those people with him has has faded to a trickle. <clears throat> but in this case, Scamandros is a powerful river that gives hope and strength to the people, also sustenance. And so when Hector calls his son Scamandros, like Scamander, he's saying that they that he hopes his son will embody the same traits of supporting and helping his people through his own personal power. And he'll say just as much to his son as he wishes him goodbye, that he hopes that he hopes that his son will someday be better than he is, though he knows he'll die. And which is a sentiment in the Ajax that is not repeated by Ajax for his son. He will say before he commits suicide selfishly, leaving his brother to be exiled, his concubine to Tecmessa to become who knows what, and his new son, well, he wishes that his new son will be just as great as he is. So he is the standard as far as he's concerned, right before he kills, his, kills himself, of course. And so a little backstory on Andromache, whose name itself might represent Hector, meaning man at war, or man of war. She was a princess of Theba, and you may recall that Theba was the city just sacked by Achilles from which Briseis and Chryseis were taken. And well, the king, Aetion, he was Andromache's father. He was killed. Her brothers, too, by Achilles, it said. And then her mother died, of course, by Artemis, because her world had died. Well, Andromache gives one of the greatest guilt trips ever. She says, with my brothers gone, my father gone, my mother gone, you are now my husband, my father, my brother, my everything, essentially. That's a major guilt trip. She's gone through absolute tragedy. She doesn't want to see him die as well. And well, how does he respond to her? He says, well, Andromache, I, I, I don't want to see you enslaved ever. In fact, if I just open my little book here and find, here we are. So first let me read to you what he says to his son. And what he says to his son, I should mention, when he's first handed his son, his son cries because he's wearing his horsehair helmet. And so he laughs and takes the helmet off, and then his son smiles at him, and he, he tosses him about in his arms, and he kisses him. And so this is what he says for his son in prayer to Zeus and the other immortals, uh, 476 to 481. <clears throat> Zeus and you other immortals, grant that this boy who is my son may be as I am, preeminent among the Trojans, great in strength as I am, and rule strongly over Ilion. And some day let them say of him, he is better by far 
than his father. As he comes in from the fighting and let him kill his enemy and bring home the blooded spoils and delight the heart of his mother. That's a beautiful thing for him to say about his son. Especially because... Well, he hands his son back to Andromache, and she smiles in her tears, and this is this is what he says to her. And it, notice that it's not particularly um, heart, heart, uh, heartening, you might say. It it doesn't inspire confidence. What she what he says here, four eighty six to five hundred two. Poor Andromache, why does your heart sorrow so much for me? No man is going to hurl me to Hades unless it is fated. But as for fate. I think that no man yet has escaped it. Once it has taken its first form, neither brave man nor coward, uh, a distinction that will later be mentioned by Achilles in Book 9. <clears throat> Go therefore back to our house and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff, and see to it that your handmaidens ply their work also. But the men must see to the fighting, all men who are the people of Ilion, but I beyond others. And actually, that was not the quote that I meant to read, but that quote illustrates well um, the beauty of Hector's soul, you might say. that The fact that he's accepted that no man escapes his fate, and so that he, as chief amongst the Trojans, should fight beyond all others uh, for his city while acknowledging the fact that he will die. He's just doing what he's got to do, is what he says. And so here is the sort of disheartening message that he gives to his wife. Then tall Hector of the Shining Helm answered her, 440 to 465. <clears throat> All these things are in my mind also, lady. Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments if, like a coward, I were to shrink aside from the fighting. And the spirit will not let me, since I have learned to be valiant and to fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans, winning for my own self great glory, Cleos, and for my father, for I know this thing well in my heart, and my mind knows it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish, and Priam, and the people of Priam of the strong ash spear. But it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, not, not even of Priam the king, nor Hecuba, not the thought of my brothers who in their numbers and valor shall drop in the dust under the hands of men who hate them. As troubles me the thought of you, when some bronze-armored Achaean leads you off, taking away your day of liberty in tears, and in Argos you must work at the loom of another and carry water from the spring of Messias or Hyperia, all unwilling, but strong will be the necessity upon you. And some day, seeing you shedding tears, a man will say of you, This is the wife of Hector, who was ever the bravest fighter of the Trojans, breaker of horses, in the days when they fought about Ilion. So will one speak of you, and for you it will be yet a fresh grief to be widowed of such a man who could fight off the day of your slavery. But may I be dead, and, and the piled earth hide me before I hear you crying and know by this that they drag you captive. So what does he say there exactly? For one, he acknowledges the fact that he knows that Troy will fall, but... Also, what he acknowledges is that what he's fighting for is not simply the glory of Troy, but the glory of his father, but also the glory of his own name, which means what? It doesn't matter to Hector necessarily that he's going to lose. He knows that it's tragic, but he's accepted that fate can be tragic. What now remains for him is to make a name, an immortal name for himself. And he actually explicitly mentions this in that quote, that he must do what he has to do in order to be the man that he is.
And how does he indicate this? Well, the very description that some man will someday give of seeing Andromache enslaved is that she was the wife of a very brave man, indicating that how she will be known will be by the reputation of Hector, which will be sterling, which, which also says that he truly does pity the fact that she's going to continue to live, but to be in worse circumstance than she is now, whereas he gets to live a life of glory and never has to endure that, and in fact, never will. And you might say that whichever of those fates you prefer might be the same position that you have on the death penalty versus life in prison, because one seems to be a glorious life and yet short-lived, with much tragedy involved in it, whereas the other is a slightly longer, still tragic, perhaps even more tragic life, where one is still alive, but one is by no means the same person once was. Once was. And so Hector departs from his wife. He can't stay, though he has indulged her with a short conversation but more than he gave to anybody else, and also has picked up his son, bounced him around, taken off his helmet, indicating that he's given him his focus, and for a moment, just for his son and his wife, he was willing to give up his aspect, his ferocious battle aspect, which he was afraid of losing by coming back to Troy, of losing his edge, and of course he could lose his edge by going back into Troy, seeing all the women he loves and all the things he loves there. And of course he could have been tempted to try and stay in there in a cowardly way, just like Paris, and nobody would have faulted him. But men would have died and it would have hurt his name, and so he didn't do it. He stuck to his character. He had character. And so now he has immortal life. And so book six ends, as Paris catches up to Hector as Hector departs. Two brothers side by side, one who fixes problems, who fights this war, who champions it, and one who causes them, who even caused this war. And so book seven, there will be another hotly disputed single combat, winner take all. And that will be between Hector and an Achaean champion, from whom nine will draw lots, and we'll talk about that next time. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 023. Thank you for listening in. Please share, please comment, and, well, we're going to keep doing this. So, have a great day.